From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you enjoy our program, please rate the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you downloaded this podcast. It really helps us grow. Now, maybe the biggest realization I've had about the world of surgery is that it's really very, very small. Today, I speak with surgical power couple Dr. Caprice Greenberg and Jake Greenberg, who I first met in Boston in 2004 when I was a medical student and they were just a resident power couple. That was after hearing about the legend of Caprice at the University of Chicago, where she was a few years ahead of me in medical school. Now, we all teach here in Madison, where Caprice and Jake, in their own ways, have made gender equality within the surgical community a focus of their work. Now, by way of formal introduction, Dr. Caprice Greenberg is the Mortgage Distinguished Chair in Health Services Research and the Vice Chair of Research here at UW's Department of Surgery. Clinically, she specializes in breast surgery while heading up our extraordinarily productive health services research group, the Wisconsin Surgical Outcomes Research or WISER program. Full disclosure, I am one of its less productive members. Dr. Jake Greenberg is the program director of UW's general surgery residency program. Clinically, he specializes in minimally invasive techniques for surgery of the stomach and esophagus, as well as bariatric surgery, and he's a hernia specialist as well. We had an insightful discussion about everything from pay gaps to parental leave, but mostly it was just fun to get the band back together. Enjoy. So it is a great pleasure to welcome to the surgery set two old friends of mine, two great mentors of mine, Caprice Greenberg and Jake Greenberg. I, at the University of Chicago, followed in Caprice's footsteps. She was sort of legendary, and I ended up working in some of the same labs and with some of the same people that she had known and, and hearing about this amazing medical student who had gone before me. And then when I got to Brigham and Women's for a sub-I, um, met her and Jake Greenberg, who was a resident there as well. I've been following them around the country ever since. So it's a, it's a real pleasure to sort of get the, uh, get the band back together again here for, for the surgery set. Welcome, you guys, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having thank us. You. Yeah, thank you. Jake and Caprice, you're obviously, you're married um, and are one of the great surgical power couples here at the University of Wisconsin. We, we have several and we've talked to a few on the podcast already. You are also both passion advocates of the role um, of women in surgery and the, and the role of family in surgery. And I sort of think of you as amazing examples of uh, successful parents and successful mentors uh, of young surgeons as well. And so, Jake, you're a real advocate uh, of, of the he-for-she movement in surgery, um, as well as the program director here and, and one of the people um, responsible for the fact that our program here has a, a remarkable percentage compared to some of the national standards of, of uh, women in surgery. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you have become one of the leading voices, really, in, in the he-for-she movement in surgery, and a little bit about what that is? So I, I, I certainly don't know that I am one of the leading voices. I mostly just do whatever Caprice tells me, and that seems to work out pretty well. Um, you know, I, I think I have at least had uh, an interesting opportunity and a perspective that a lot of surgeons don't have, and that's both being a male surgical resident, uh, training alongside a partner, and then eventually spouse who is a female surgical resident, 
And then also seeing that transition to being a male surgical faculty member and seeing the differences uh, between my transition and her transition as a female surgical faculty member. So I, I think I've had um, the opportunity to see some of the differences in the way that gender plays out uh, in the hospital um, uh, that a lot of other people have just not had opportunities to see. Uh, and, and so I think that has made me at least some way more attuned to the differences and unfortunately usually the benefits that come with being a male surgeon and a male surgical trainee. Uh, and, and the fact that our job is often made easier because ancillary staff, support staff tend to not question us males as much as they do the females. Um, and that, that women genuinely, I think, have to work a lot harder to get uh, similar tasks and similar things done to what we do. And so I, I just had the opportunity, I think, to see that a lot as a trainee and as a resident. Um, and I just tried to, as a program director, keep that in mind and try to make that easier for my female trainees whenever possible. Um, and I still don't have a great solution to it, but I think I, I have a good perspective. Caprice, you gave, I think, one of the most widely viral uh, American Academy or Academic Association of Surgery uh, keynote addresses, um, a talk called Sticky Floors and, and Glass Ceilings. And I think one of the, the anecdotes that's really stuck with me from that, um, and it's an amazing talk that we'll link off of the website for people who want to see the full thing. And I totally recommend watching the whole thing. But the, one of the things that the stories that, that really struck me there was your description of what it was like to uh, be working as a as a mom while Jake actually was taking care of your kids at home. Yeah, I think um, one of the really unique things about being a surgical couple is trying to figure out how you have the same job and how you balance things at home. And so one of the things that Jake and I have become very strong advocates of is the need for equality and parental leave. Um, for us, it was happenstance that allowed him to have time um, at home with our daughter. So I was finishing up my fellowship when our first child was born, Kate, and had to go back to work after about four or five weeks. And Jake had just finished his master's degree, so he had about six weeks off before he had to go back to residency. So he had a one-month-old that he took care of as the primary caregiver. You know, he flew with her. He took complete control of her life. And so it really, I think, set us up to be equals when it came to parenting in a way that um, doesn't happen the way that things are currently set up in our country. And it really is remarkable the disparity in in the way that women and men are sort of given time to take care of families and the expectations around what they're going to do with regards to their families. Yeah, and you know, there's some data emerging on that, that um, as much as women feel this pressure to be in the home, men feel this pressure not to be in the home. And that there are real sort of social pressures and ramifications for men who suggest that they want to be home more and be more involved with their families. And I think that's especially true in surgery. And until we can overcome those barriers for men, I think it's gonna be really, really challenging for us to really truly have gender equality. Yeah, I, I, and it's such an interesting way of thinking about it because I think so often we frame gender equality as we need to make things better for, for women surgeons. We need to make it more equal, their experience more equal. We need to make sure that they're respected as physicians and not assumed to not be doctors just because they're women. And, all, and the myriad sort of financial things and, and um, the, the cultural issues around surgery that, that women 
struggle with. But but the flip side is also true, right? Like we need equality means like making men take paternity leave too. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, before we started this recording, I just asked you if you watched RBJ la- or RBG last night, and um, you know, one of the things that really struck me there was this case that she brought where a male who was a single parent because his spouse had died was unable to get social security benefits disability benefits when he had to take time off from work to care for his child. And so, you know, it was really kind of flipping things and showing that these sort of gender buckets that we put people into have really negative ramifications for everyone. Right. Um, And I think that we need to find ways to kind of figure that out because so far what we've been trying to do, you know, we've come a long way but we haven't come a long way, right? I mean, it's kind of, we were talking about this last night, you know, it's kind of, it's it's exciting when you think about the fact that, you know, what, um, what Ginsburg faced was just in the 60s and 70s. Um, It's amazing how far we've come, but then if you take a step back and you think, wow, but look at all the disparity that still exists. Right, yeah. Like, you can have a credit card in your own name now, which is is great, but... Are women in any way equal in surgery? And, and I mean, you've talked about a number of metrics that would suggest that we are a long, long way from being truly equal. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think just this past week, in in like the Dallas Medical Newsletter, there was a, a quote from a male uh, internist saying essentially that women should be paid less because they're choosing to work less because they have other things that they want to pursue such as motherhood and family and and it really kind of flies in the face of all of the data that shows that no matter how you control for this women are still paid less because there is a true gender pay gap Um, and and it just shows that there is still a lot of ignorance out there uh, about this problem Um, and while there is certainly a groundswell in the movement to make changes it's it's not happening quickly I think I think the other problem is that the system, the way the entire system is built up, is so biased against women that like we have to almost break the whole system down in order for there to tr- be true equity. So, um, what I mean by that is, in, we recently wrote an editorial where we talked about this issue of um, over adjustment bias, mm. where basically. Whenever you do these analyses, you're controlling for number of publications or number of RVUs or these different metrics of productivity. And so you're basically taking that out of the equation, but each of those contributes to the inequities that exist, right? right? And so, for example, you know, I like, I've been recently really focused on this RVU issue. You know, I'm a breast surgeon. Right. If you look at breast and, and OBGYN, we're the lowest paid specialties in surgery. And you look at the highest paid specialties in surgery, and it's orthopedics, mm-hmm. right? And you look at RVUs, which are supposed to be based on things like risk and difficulty of case decision making and all of these things, it's very hard to, for me to believe that an orthopedist faces more risk and more difficult decision making than I do in treating breast cancer or than an obstetrician does in delivering a baby. Right. Right? So, and these, these RVUs are relatively arbitrarily generated numbers, relative value units, right, that people assign to yes. different procedures. Yes. And so if you think about breast surgery or gynecology, that's women type work. And mm-hmm. if you think about orthopedics, that's male type work. Yeah. And so you have a group of 28 people who sit around and set these RVUs. 
26 of whom are men currently. And you wonder why you have RVUs that are lower for breast surgery than you do for orthopedics. Yeah. Right. I, 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 I mean, you know, who knows, but I'm just, you know, and if you look at the data workforce side and look at it more globally in terms of economics, you can just look at these patterns all over the place in terms of what woman type work and what male, type, female and male type work is right. reimbursed at. And there's stark differences. Yeah. Unbelievable. And you think of these things as sort of givens, right? Bedrock, like what is the RVU for any given thing? But to think about like, well, who's, who's deciding that? Right. Who's in the room? Right. Right. And that's who, who what I mean about gets to be in the room the, where it happens. And that's right, exactly. And that's what I mean about it being so deeply embedded in our system that we even stop thinking about it, yeah. right? Or if you look at grants, right? So if you look at grants, men and women are just as likely to have NIH funding. If you look at productivity, women have far fewer publications than men do. But if we took a look at where those are being published, there's actually data su to suggest that women publish in higher impact journals and have higher impact publications. So perhaps we're more selective in what we're publishing and not, mm -hmm. you know, we're perhaps, perhaps women have tendencies to um, prioritize quality over quantity. Again, just sort of a male-female difference, but for some reason, the male approach is what our system is currently rewarding. Yeah. So how do we get it such that we think more equally about different approaches that are both adding value but might not be the same and don't automatically assume that the male type, quote-unquote, is better or superior? Right. Yeah, and I mean, so much of that seems like it's a pipeline issue too, right? It's it's how many women are, are part of surgery and, and our leaders in surgery who can be part of that conversation. I mean, Jake, you're, you're in charge of, of shepherding our residents through their residency process. And I think here at University of Wisconsin, we do have more than on the sort of typical average number of, of women in our residency program. How do you think about like, how, to, how do you think about training women to become the new leaders in surgery who can fix this? Like, do you teach them how to be more male? Or like, how do you take advantage of their native abilities or, or differences in a way that is powerful rather than saying like, you just need to be more like the boys? I think that historically, probably the powerful female surgeons did survive by being more like the boys. And I think that that is an antiquated view uh, and something that should certainly change. And I think it is changing. I mean, honestly, here at the University of Wisconsin, it's very easy because our female residents have so many strong female leaders and role models within our department that it's incredible, right? So we have a female division chief, we have a female department chair, we have a female, uh, two female heads of the vice chairs of research. Three out of five of our division chiefs are females. I mean, it's a phenomenal example of strong, powerful women who are doing this and doing this in their own way. Here, we're, we're almost spoiled because it's very easy to show them that you can be this role model and you can be this leader. And they probably get an almost skewed view of what it might be like out in other institutions. And that I have a little bit of a harder time teaching because just of how, how our structure uh, is here. Uh, but I do worry about that. Speaking from my own perspective, I was just in a meeting with Caprice, who is my academic mentor here. We are, are working with in developing the Surgical Collaborative of Wisconsin, which is an outreach 
effort across the whole state, partnering with multiple hospitals across the state to establish best practices and be a resource as a university for rural community surgeons, which I think is an incredibly exciting effort that's going to be the topic of many future podcasts. But I was struck as I was sitting in this meeting that, A, I was the only man there, and we spent the first 10 minutes of the meeting showing pictures of our kids going to their first day of school. And I was just stunned at how comfortable and pleasant and effective that meeting was. And I think that a lot of it was because we took a few minutes at the beginning to connect as people and talk about our families and talk about issues outside of surgery and not do a lot of chest thumping about like how many cases we did last weekend. You know, from my perspective, I think I've really learned here, you know, in a place where I'm surrounded by women surgeons and in positions of extraordinary authority, that that can really change the dynamic in a way that I think is incredibly powerful. So how, mm-hmm. how do we propagate that? I think we continue to lead by example, right? I think we, uh, we continue to be one of the departments uh, and one of the institutions where we have strong female leaders that are able to pick up a microphone on the national stage, uh, like Caprice, like Dr. Minter, like Dr. Sipple. I should have said Dr. Greenberg, that's my fault. Um, uh, and can be leaders for other departments to see and for other students and for other residents to see as well. Caprice, what do you think are sort of the next... What does the next 10 years look like? What are the trends? I mean, are we headed in the right direction? And like, and what does the ideal state look like? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that what's happened in terms of putting women into leadership positions has been very positive. You know, just in terms of the number of chairs going from six, five years ago to 21. I think the number is something close to that. I think that the thing that we really need to take a step back and look at is the way that we value surgeons' time and the way that we think about reimbursement and promotion. Because I I just worry that there, again, is so much implicit bias embedded in those systems that we've developed that unless we take a hard look and do some, some really disruptive innovations in those areas, it's gonna be pretty hard to get rid of all the bias that exists. So what do I mean by that? Um, just things that we take for granted, I think we, we have to question why we do them, mm-hmm. right? So why do you have to see the name of the PI when you're evaluating a grant at an NIH study section? Why, right. why do you need to know their gender? Why do you need to know their name, right? You, yeah. you don't. Why do you need to see the name on a tenure packet? for promotion you know or if we think about reimbursement again you know we we think we have these transparent systems but we just talked about the problems with RVUs we're not even getting into the issues around how medical directorships are assigned or you know where those salaries lines come from and how they lead to the disparities which there's a couple of really great papers that were just published in analysis surgery from the american surgical that looked at institutional a couple of just institutional case studies that talked about how these different medical directorships these different you know endowed professorships endowed chairs how those may be contributing to some of the major differences that we see in salaries you know, we, we think if it's benchmarked and if it's, you know, something you can quantify, it's somehow going to be fair. But that's why you have people like this Dallas guy saying that women work less. Right. Right. We're over adjusting. We're not looking at what the real fundamental core root of the problem is, which is it really deeply embedded in the system. 
Yeah, he did definitely didn't mention the studies that showed that female physicians had better outcomes. Right. Yeah. Or that I think they work just as long hours. Yeah. Right. It's it's that they have lower RVUs because they go into specialties. That again, if you look at the proportion of women in a job and you look at the salaries for men and women in those jobs, they are lower than the jobs that are dominated by men. Yeah. And so you're naturally, again, until we start figuring out how to reimburse people at a more equal level, it's going to be really hard for us to, to really truly get people where, we're, where, where we have equity. So for, for listeners who are interested in this issue, which I just think is one of the foundational issues of surgery in the 21st century, and I think we're at a very early stage of something that's going to be incredibly transformative in the way we practice medicine, hopefully, over the next generation. Um, you know, one thing I know that, that you can do if you're interested in this is you can follow that he for she hashtag on Twitter. Um, what are the other resources to sort of find out more about this or talk, talk about it more, become part of this conversation? So I think the Association of Women Surgeons is a great resource as well. Um, they have a phenomenal Twitter feed. They have a very active membership. They have a lot of opportunities for female surgeons and honestly, really good opportunities for male surgeons to be involved in the in the conversation and in the issues as well. I think it's a phenomenal um, organization, one that, that people who have an interest in, in this should join regardless of uh, gender, race, creed, uh, really anything. It's just a, a very good organization. And AWS has also put out some guidelines around some pretty straightforward things that you can do to help with salary disparities. The other organization, American Surgical, has just published a white paper. Uh, There's an article in Annals of Surgery, and then there's a white paper that I believe is available on the American Surgical website that really tackles issues around equity and inclusion much more broadly than just women in surgery, tackling issues around gay, lesbian, and bisexual populations as well as um, underrepresented minorities in surgery. And so that was really intended to kind of be a blueprint for people that wanted to try to tackle some of these systemic issues that we face. Um, If you want a book to read, I would recommend Virginia Valiant's book, Why So Slow? Um, it is a really great book in that um, it's, a, it's a dense read, um, but it's basically um, you know, a really um, empirical book that's based on evidence from the social sciences that talks about how we start imposing gender norms on our children at a very, very early age, and then how that sort of impacts your life throughout the entire spectrum of your career. I found it to be incredibly enlightening and really was a lot of the basis for the talk that I gave. Fantastic. And we'll put links to that talk and to the sites that we've talked about here all up on the the website as well. I just just want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to come and talk with us. And really, just I'm so proud to be part of an institution that has you both as as leaders here because I think this is going to be where a lot of really amazing things start for, for the next generation of surgeons. So thank you. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when I speak with visiting professor Dr. Timothy Baxter from the University of Nebraska. He gave a talk here entitled Guinness Stout Statistics and Surgical Research, and we'll be talking about the personal stories behind the names on all our statistical tests and about how residents can make the most of their research years. See you soon. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. 
It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J-E Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.